Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, roll up for the magical mystery tour. In the year 1967, we went on a magical mystery tour. Well, you and I didn't. (laughs) We collectively as a species did. Okay, there I go. Because I, I wasn't yet a gleam in some sailor's eye in 1967. But <laughs> um, yeah, today's film is Magical Mystery Tour. Um, no, it's not quite sci-fi. I get that. There's I, I went with it because there's like alchemists in the clouds. Um, more, <laughs> one of my obsessions is sci-fi. Another of my obsessions is music, and I, and I'm a pretty big Beatles fan. And uh, there's a lot of boxes we can tick here. Um, so, this is Matt. This is Luke. And welcome to... Oh, you're going to start it? Go ahead. Welcome to our... Sci-Fi Sanctuary! A little backwards today. Um, I do love this film, uh, but the real thing we have here is we have a guest today who is just converges on so many of the best things about the 60s. For the art scene, he was uh, friends with Yoko... Ono early on, uh, when she was doing some of her first avant-garde art, uh, he ended up being Moonwatcher the Ape in 2001 A Space Odyssey, which definitely makes him some sci-fi royalty. And then for my musical love, he uh, served as John Lennon and Yoko Ono's personal assistant from 1969 to 1972. He's been referred to as the um, most famous unknown actor in the world and yes ladies and gentlemen we are bringing a master mime onto an audio only podcast it is uh dan richter hello hi there how you guys doing we're doing great yeah it's a nice well it's an overcast day in japan but uh nice day off for us and so forth so um for me i guess uh we'll just well, we'll uh, dan we're definitely gonna ask you a few questions soon but for me this movie was seen on grainy VHS copies for me through the 90s. I, I think I finally got a Blu-ray, which looks nice, but I just I just like to return to this one. Uh, it's on YouTube as well if anyone wants to watch it, if you want to watch it that way. It's a pretty easy one to find, but the weird thing is it's like the biggest band in the world basically making a home movie, which is weirdly charming. Uh, Luke, I think this is the first time you've seen it. Yeah, I mean, of course, growing up in the UK, I was aware of this and of the Beatles, but this was my first time actually watching it. Have you seen, like, footage with them or anything to speak of? Yeah, of course. Like, uh, there would often be documentaries or I'd see them on, like, Top of the Pops 2 and stuff like that. So, of course, I've seen a fair amount of Beatles stuff. Yeah. Um, And, Dan, did you... When did you uh, first see this one? Magical Mystery Tour I saw when it came out in London. 
uh, I was in London at the time, and uh, I would see the, the Beatles at parties and things like that, and I and at friends' houses. Uh, so I was sort of into them at the t at the time in '67. Uh, I was working pretty much all the all day long for Stanley Kubrick on 2001: Space Odyssey because the you know we were pretty much working around the clock. So I wasn't on the town as much as I would be normally. Right. And this uh, aired on television black and white, I believe? No, it was color. Oh, oh the movie's in color, but I've, I've heard that the first airing was black and white. Maybe you had a more privileged viewing. I remember it as color. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when it first aired on television. But I could be wrong, but I don't see a reason for it to be in black and white. Uh, there was color TV at the time. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very sort of flower powery uh, spacey, uh, cart cartoon, you know, drawing with also the colors are sort of critical. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, actually, that's Yellow Submarine, which I did mention to you at first. Uh, we're looking at the live action one today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, um, I don't remember that being in black and white. I did, I did some work on it later. I, I, I tried to blow it up to 35 millimeter. I can't remember what it was in originally. I had it in my editing room at Apple for a while. Um, it looks quite 16 to me. Uh, I mean, of course, you blow it up and now it's 35, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it probably was, uh, thinking of the people who would have shot it, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, you have to remember, um, I, have an, I have an addled old brain, you know, <laughs> uh, but... Um, that's the way I root. Anyway, ask me more questions about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess how much of the 60s, does this have like the flavor of uh, the 60s scene in London? It just, it feels more real to me. I, I sometimes like watching educational films because they're relatively low budget. I feel like you get more of an insight into the period you're looking at. So for me, part of the charm has always been. It's very, very much so. Um, they, they, they weren't that happy with it. Uh, because it was, it had, it had home movie qualities to it, you know, and, uh, at this point, the Beatles were experimenting with all kinds of things, you know, they had set up the Apple office and they were, uh, they were, they had all kinds of, uh, like designers like the Fool, uh, you know, that group of that commune had come over and they were, had opened the Apple boutique on Baker Street, which didn't do very well either. And they ended up, uh, giving all the clothing away. Um, but they were just, everybody was stoned out of their minds and just experimenting and having a good time. I guess that's pretty much what the film feels like, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you have to, this is the height of, of every, of everybody sort of getting high and, uh, spacing out and thinking about all kinds of exciting new ideas and love everybody and whatnot. And it's before the, the badness started setting in, you know, the Manson family and all of that, which changed everything. So this is still the, the, the bloom is still on the rose, you know. Everybody's loving everybody and uh, just going around and, and, and it's, it's all, well, love. All you need is love. The one thing with this is, um, I, I definitely agree with you, but I believe this is the first project they did after uh, Brian Epstein died, which might have been the first... Uh, petal falling off of that particular rose. 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. Uh, the uh, you know, I don't. What is what what is the the actual? Do you have there the actual date that it was released? Uh, so uh, it, apparently, according to Wikipedia, it aired Boxing Day, nineteen sixty-seven, in black and white, and then the fifth of January, sixty-eight, in color. Okay, so the well, Wikipedia. Well, I don't know whether it knows what it's talking about, but it probably <laughs> does. It probably wasn't. See, it was everything was like. Everybody just, oh, so-and-so's got a good idea, let's do it. You know, uh, it was sort of that flavor. Um, I know John wasn't happy with some of this. There's one scene where he's shoveling spaghetti onto a plate with a shovel or a pitchfork, and wasn't very complimentary. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it was uh, shot in 16. Right. Um we're get a little deeper into the film, but uh, just for the listener and everyone, uh, Luke is going to give a pretty short synopsis of this one. But we like to give a synopsis and then and then get a little more into the actors. So, Luke, can you take us there? I can try. <laughs> on the path, remember the vow, be aware and authentic to where you are now. Fear Isle hides the marsh crocodile in veils of mystery. Ringo Starr and his auntie get on a bus with a bunch of other, I guess you'd call them party people. To go on a magical mystery tour. And the bus is taken on some wild trips by a group of magicians. They find themselves in an army base. They find themselves entering a race. They find themselves encountering a large amount of spaghetti. They see some musical interludes, some live performances. And... Things happen? And then they get off the bus. <laughs> it's not really the sort of film that you talk about a plot. It's more like oh, a sketch show. Okay. <laughs> oh, sort of sketches and somebody would have an idea and let's shoot this and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, uh, it was very loose, uh, very loose and changing and evolving as, as they were making it. It was, um, I think they were having a lot of fun. And it's infectious. That's why I like this so much. The fun just comes through. Um, I, I guess let's talk about the Beatles who are, are not John Lennon at first. Uh, you had actually had a few run-ins already at this point, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was what we called, you know, the scene in those days. Um, that's what, you know, hit people. And um, the Beatles, uh, once they stopped touring, well, even when they were touring, you know, they were... They were uh, in in town. I mean, I I remember I was having dinner at um, with uh, John Dunbar and Mary Ann Faithful one night, and you know Paul turned up with a hobby horse for the new baby and some grass that Bob Dylan had given him. You know, we all got stoned and sat on the floor on the on the carpet and banged uh, pans from the kitchen and made up songs. You know, that was the kind of mood that was spreading. Everything was everything was very free and fun and. Uh, and there were great parties uh, that would take place in houses all over town um, where I remember once I was at um, 
Allen Ginsberg, who was a friend of mine, had a, they were throwing a big, some rich patron was throwing a big party in Belgravia, you know, and Alan liked to take his clothes off at parties. And so he's standing there naked and uh, I'm talking to him with some other people. And I heard behind me, it's fucking Alan Ginsberg and he's got no clothes on, you know, and there's the Beatles. And they're good. And, it, and so they were, they were hanging out at, at the, the, you know, parties and nightclubs and uh, sort of the whole scene that was going on in London. Oh, it sounds like Matt's being told off by his wife. Uh, no, I was asked if I had gotten my rain shoes, which I have not yet, and it's the rainy season in Japan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but yeah, that, that sort of party scene just, uh, I guess it's un, its a particularly unimaginable today, so. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about that today, guys, and it's, it's almost impossible to describe to people what it was like, because it's just, it was, but it, it because it was, wasn't, the physical things we were doing and saying, it was the feeling that was going around, that the world was changing, it was a new world, we had we had just, everybody had turned, turned on and tuned into this whole new thing, and it was going to be incredible, and it was, uh, you know, love, and just colors, and everybody was, everything was great, and it was like, uh, you thought you were in heaven. You weren't. We weren't, but we thought we were. I guess it's, um, you know, mass marketed things often have a falseness about them. And uh, just to, to be happy people in a certain way, I feel like we all need to sort of create our own culture. And um, that period, just you were able to create your own culture on like steroids, basically. Yeah. Uh, well, the, you know, it's let's put it this way. I used to, you know, I used to publish beat poets. I had a poetry review called Residue. And we were, uh, we were going to do a, a poetry reading with Allen Ginsberg, and he was going to go on television. And so, now most of the poetry readings we had done were for, uh, in the backs of bookshops for 60 people at the most, 30 people. But Alan said, oh, they want to talk. He had been arrested in uh, Czechoslovakia, because uh, the students had made him the King of the May, and he had run around naked again, and the Czechs had thrown him out, and it, it was in the newspapers. And so he was going on the national news in England, you know. So we said to him, Alan, we'll get an address. You tell people, and we'll get lots of people to come to a poetry reading. So um, I, uh, I was looking for a place with my wife, Jill, and we were smoking a joint over at, um, at the, in High Park, looking across at by the, the the Albert Memorial there, and there was the Royal Albert Hall, this gigantic hall that holds 4,000, 5,000 people. And the, it was good grass, you know. So anyway, we went in, and uh, I said to them, do you, do you, how much does it cost to rent this place? And they said, well, you know, you're in luck. There's been a cancellation for about six days from now, something like that. And um, we, we had a little bit of money because uh, Jill's family had just uh, – cashed an insurance policy that they had set for her. So we wrote a check, put a deposit. Alan went on the radio that night, on the television that night, and said, everybody's got to come to this thing. I went back the next day thinking, well, all we have to do is, if we get 500 people, you know, that'll pay for it, you know. 
went back and I said, do I have to give you any more money? They said, no, you've, you've almost sold out already. And so suddenly there were thousands of people smoking dope, turning on, listening to, you know, all this new music. I don't know where they all came from, but it all it seemed to happen overnight. And London seemed to be sort of a the epicenter of what was going on. And it was uh, it was like a dream. It was beautiful. Luke, can you recognize this London and all? You've been there a few times. No, London today is so dry. It feel, I feel like the 60s was the last time that you would you could really honestly call London like the cultural capital of the world. I feel like now most people would move that over to America or even to Asia. But back then, like, the music was coming from London. The films were being filmed in London. Like, all the great art was happening in London. I guess that's just where all the cool people were. But yeah, now, I, if I walk around I mean, London now, I just see bankers. Yeah, the Beatles had a lot to do with it because they were, they were so popular. Mm. And... The, and the, and there were the, all the, there was many other bands, British bands, and they were just taking over. And I mean, as far in terms of the whole world, you know, uh, the, and, and it's hard to explain to people how big the Beatles were. They were, they were much bigger than the music world. They were just the biggest thing around. It doesn't matter what it was. They were bigger and they had just simply just taken over everything. Also, they were a main source of foreign foreign money coming into into uh, England, uh, and the uh, and with the other bands that had uh, were were starting to take off like Stones and whatnot. Uh, it, it was it was a, it was absolutely amazing, and it was like being at the center of the universe. Can we get uh, just an impression and or two of the of uh, George Harrison or Ringo Starr? Well. Nice guys, uh, both good musicians. Uh, Ringo was, uh, I, you know, I, I, I didn't see them as much as John, but I, I knew them pretty well. I saw a lot of Ringo because I had an office at the Apple office, uh, and Ringo had one there too. And so I would see him, you know, have lunch or do a couple lines or something like that, you know, hang out. Uh, George was a quieter, quieter soul. But very, very sort of spiritual and thoughtful, uh, wonderful, wonderful man. And um, he, but you know, I'll give a perfect example if you want the comparison of the two. I was showing all the any film that had to do with the Beatles for the Beatles. I had I would take to the Cannes Film Festival, and I was showing their films down there. I was showing Ringo had a spaghetti western he was in, and George had a. Thing he had done with Ravi Shankar and Indian Music, and John and Yoko had a couple films, and they had also bought a film called El Topo, which was very hot then. And so I was, I every I had a, I had a French press agent, and I was showing films every night at the at the festival. And Ringo had rented this incredible yacht, I mean big, you know, with formal dining room and the whole thing. And so he had a big party out there. And that was Ringo, you know, and it was beautiful. And I'm, I'm sitting at the, the table, we're having dinner, and uh, George is beside me. And he leans over and says, hey, Dan, you got you got any doogies, which is what meant grass, you know. And I said, yeah, I got a little bit on me. He said, let's get out of here. And so we went up and sat on the top of the boat, looked at the lights, you know, of, of Con across the water. And he was, he was, Ringo was the guy who wanted to have this, 
wonderful dinner with all kinds of interesting people and sort of social animal. And George was the guy who wanted to go up, go and get away from everything and sit up quietly and, and smoke a joint and look at the lights, you know. It really shows you who the two people were, uh, gives you a good idea of the difference between them. Seeing Ringo here, and also I've been playing a lot of Mario again, I really want to grow a moustache again, Matt. Go for it. I, it's, you... Because I know that I always look like a terrible sex pest when I grow one. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it looks so cool in, in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a nice one. Um I, let's let's get talking about John Lennon a little bit. And Dan, from your book, it seems you you got to actually know him trapped in a closet, was it? Well, yeah, because you know what ha what happened. I'll give you a little background here. Is that uh, I had finished two thousand and one, uh, and my wife Jill and I had gone back to the states and had had got rid of our apartment in London, and we decided to come back to England, and we didn't have a place to stay, and Jill. Uh, uh, and Yoko were talking and Yoko said, well, we've got an empty house, uh, which had been John's house, uh, uh, just south of town because we bought this new place called Tittenhurst Park. And so why don't you guys just house it, that house for us and give you a place to stay till you get settled. And a couple of days later, there was the Manson thing and Jill got all nervous about being all alone in the house. And so Yoko said, well, why don't you guys come over and live with us? It'd be nice to have you around. And uh, while well, you, since you're in between things, I, I had a film coming up I was going to act in, but it, was, it wasn't another month or two. And uh, so we went out to live at Tittenhurst with them and I ended up staying for three years and being involved with the making of Imagine and the Plastic Ono Band albums. And I did a couple of the, I did a couple of the album covers. I produced some of the films and, and I became sort of their, I rode shotgun with them when they traveled and did things, you know. And so I got to know John very well. You know, I'd see him every day for almost three years. And um, he was, I consider him, a, he was a close friend, you know. Um, so ask me questions about him, I'll tell you. Um, I guess a good one for now, just with all of the you know, I guess political activism is, is on the rise again. And, and that was when you were uh, working for him, that was, I guess, the, the main bit of political activism. How did that roll? Well, you know, uh, both both John and Yoko were, uh, were they really wanted to, well, what, I'll give you, again, some background, is that Yoko said to John after they'd met, when you sing I Want to Hold Your Hand, Millions of people around the world here, I want to hold your hand. Why don't you take, since everybody's listening to you and going to listen to anything you say, why don't you say things that could change the world? And John said, well, that's cool. And they started doing, they did, they started doing their, when they, when they got married, they did the, uh, the bed-ins, you know, at the Hilton and, um, and uh, whatchamacallit, um, I guess it was Vienna and then, uh, or was it New Amsterdam, I guess, and then also one in uh, Montreal. 
Uh, and they began the whole process of, uh, they got involved in many causes and whatnot, uh, against the war, you know, for, for peace, for, uh, you know, just a bunch of things that were, that were big, big causes at the time. And they were, you know, they would march in demos, they would do sit-ins and, uh, you know, uh, performances. Uh, and uh, I was very much a part of that. It was, uh, it got, it got pretty heavy when once they got to the states, and uh, because Nixon did, was really unhappy with them. And um, we had one point in New York where the FBI was just hanging outside the house all the time and tapping the phones and. Um, got a little scary uh, for a while there. I would imagine. Um, what what techniques? I mean, you know, maybe people listening to this are feeling stronger about issues now. Uh, are there any just ways to approach people with a, a divisive issue that you know maybe can chill them out a little bit or, or open the door for like a good conversation? Because when you're going down the streets being mobbed, you need to, I guess, have a few techniques or tactics just how to chill people out a little bit well the it's the the thing about john yoko is that they understood that john was arguably perhaps the most famous person in the world at that point you know and so the for it was easy for them to get people's attention all that john just had to open his mouth you know and millions of people would hear it you know they they would hang on his words uh, so for them it was easy, and and they they lent that they lent that to uh, to other causes. I mean, there were lots of things we were doing. For instance, there was the Oz uh, obscenity trial, you know, which was about censorship, and uh, we actually had the, uh, the people who had been charged by uh, the government living out in Ascot, and we got them, you know, uh, printing machines so they could make flyers and. Uh, John um, John uh, wrote a song to raise money for them, uh, which I did. I did the cover of, and, and actually, I actually recorded it. And um, so, it, whatever the the main thing, the main thing that anybody, if you're talking about what other people should do, is just get out and be visible, you know, and do it. And John always, John and Yoko both always were uh, against all forms of violence. Uh, which I think is really important uh, uh, because when you do, you lose credibility. Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a tough time now. Again, people. You know, I think it's great to see people in the streets, and uh, it's about time um, everybody was equal and not some more equal than others. So something you often hear a lot these days, whenever any kind of celebrity or musician or actor tries to speak out on an issue. People are always, um, they're giving it like, oh, you know, I don't listen to you for these opinions. I just, I'm here for your music. Don't get political. Was there a lot of that kind of pushback to John back in the day? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, who the hell, you're just a rock and roll musician, you know. Uh, how the heck, you know, and, or what are you talking about the Vietnam War for? You know, I mean, where do you get off telling us Americans what to do? Um, and uh, but a lot of it's, it, it was worse then than it is now. Let's put it that way. Okay. Because much worse. And and so John Yoko are real pioneers in terms of celebrities 
using their position for causes. Today, I mean, lots of people, a lot of celebrities do stuff, you know, uh, constantly. And uh, but back then, you know, it was, the idea was, no, it was like you're not supposed to do that. You know, you, you make make us music, but don't tell us what to do politically or what to do with our lives. I guess another interesting thing from your perspective would be, um, you know, we're going to do this podcast and afterwards I'm probably going to take a walk around my neighborhood, drop into a convenience store, which we can actually still do in Japan. Um, but um, you were living in quite a bubble with them. That's not a guy that can just stroll on down to the corner market. No, it was, uh, well, as you saw, you know, John was killed, you know, because, uh, um, and the, what we what we did a lot of, I I would do a lot of things to try to protect them, like for instance, I never told anybody where and when we were going to go someplace unless it was on a need to know basis. Uh, usually we would uh, they 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 wouldn't they wouldn't say okay I want to go shopping, uh, you know whatnot they would they would uh, we would send assistants out to you know if Yoko wanted a pair of boots from Bergdorf Goodman, you know, somebody would go out and buy 10 or 15 pairs, all different choices of them, you know, give them the, you know, the American Express card or something and uh, bring them and then bring them back to her. And then she'd try to, she'd pick the one she likes or two she likes. And, and then they take every, all the others back. Uh, we, uh, they could always stop if they were driving around in the limo, they could stop and get out for maybe 30 seconds, a minute or two before they were recognized, and then they'd have to jump back in and, and go again. We once, um, uh, John and Yoko wanted, were, were meeting Bob Dylan at the, um, at the plaza one, one afternoon, and um, so we pulled up in the limo, and I never, I, instead of, I had the limo, instead of pulling up at the main entrance, you, you, I, you probably don't know the plaza, but up at a side entrance so we could slip in, you know. Um, and I, the limo pulled up. I got out. I checked everything. Everything looked cool. So I went back to the limo. I said, yeah, it's cool. Let's go. And so we go in, and we started going across the lobby, and this guy that looked like Jack Ruby in a suit and a, a hat, fedora hat, comes running towards us and reaches his hand inside his coat. I figure, fuck, man, you know, we're, you know, we're toast, you know. And so I jumped in front of him, I put my hands up and said, talk to me, talk to me, you know. And he said, that's, that's John Lennon. And I said, just talk to me. What do you want? What do you want? He said, well, we're security. I said, John, you scared the shit out of, shit out of us. What are you doing? And so anyway, we went and got in the elevator and there's, there's Bob uh, laughing, uh, in a, and he's got like a, an army, just a, an army uh, jacket on and a, and a floppy hat and shades and the hats pulled down. You'd never know it was Bob Dylan, you know. But you were always worried about that moment would happen, when something bad would happen. Yeah, and just uh, just a little bit back into the the magical mystery tour. There is a scene which stands out to me, which is um, George and John just playing with a kid on the bus, which seems just way more authentic than pretty much anything you'd see in a movie. Um, how do you feel about that one? Well, yeah, you know, look, guys, it, it wasn't really scripted, you know, and 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 it and it, there wasn't like a director, uh, big budget, 
uh, director of photography. There were photographers, but there, you know, it wasn't made like a movie. Um, and, and, uh, and so it, a lot of it was very improvisational. It's them just doing stuff and just experimenting and playing and having fun. Okay. George, you know, it's going to talk to a kid, you know, um, see what happens, you know. ostensibly a sci-fi podcast and we would be completely remiss not to ask a little bit about playing a uh, moon watcher in 2001 uh, from reading your book it sounds like you sort of ended up in that role by a bit of a serendipity yeah i i wasn't looking for uh, a job in pictures at that point i was doing experimental performances you know sort of avant-garde art stuff which is where was my so it was my want at the time, and I was also publishing uh, beat poetry and, and doing poetry readings at events. And um, uh, through mutual friends of Stanley and Arthur Clark, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clark, through a mutual friend uh, and a, a producer friend of mine said, I was just talking to this guy, who, uh, Mike Wilson, who works with um, Arthur Clark, and he said, and he and Stanley were saying the opening of 2001 as a scene where it's all just uh, early man, some manics. And they've been trying to do it for two years, and everything they've tried hasn't worked. And then they suddenly they thought, well, we've never talked to a mime. How do you find a mime? So my friend said to uh, this guy, well, I know the best mime in town. It's Dan Richter. You know, So I got asked to come out and have Stanley pick my brain. So I went out, and I thought that was really cool. I mean, I knew Stanley's work, you know, as a amazing, you know, great genius. And I thought, okay, I've got, and I, so I didn't go out looking for a job. I just went out to let him pick my brain and get a chance to meet this great guy. Um, and we, we got going, he showed me, he explained to me what his problem was and whatnot. And I said to him, well, your problem is you have to create a willing suspension of this. You know, I was really cocky. I was in my twenties, you know, so you have to, you, willing suspension of disbelief. I see it as an acting problem, not a moving problem. You gotta, you gotta get motivated, uh, creatures up there that, that the audience react to immediately. And, um, and I could do that. I could show you how to do that. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you, uh, the audience will believe what they see if it's motivated and grabs them. So that the way you not see the costume is by really good performing, you know, really good performing, which is comes from motivated acting. Because uh, you got to grab them, grab them by the throat or the balls or whatever you want to say right away. And uh, so I showed him, you know, I, I he said, well, that you talk good, you know, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't know. You don't have much of a resume or anything. And so I said, give me 20 minutes of stage, uh, a leotard, black leotard, and two towels, and uh, I'll show you. And so he said, we can do that. And I, I went and I put a leotard on. I stuffed the towels inside to change the shape of my body a bit, build up my shoulders. And uh, and I, I played a character. Um, I had a character I like to play called Joe, who's sort of a 
paranoid, aggressive, not that bright. Uh, so I told Joe, uh, just be a monkey, you know, be an ape. And uh, Joe didn't like the idea, but, you know, he did it anyway. And I went out and let, I let Joe be an ape. And uh, Stanley loved it. And then I went back and then I then I played a very timid character I have that woo, that's very nervous. And um, and I went out and played that character and I explained to him I was and he loved that. And I said, it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, sleepy, dark, you know, dopey. You have to have if they're, if they're clear characters and they're that's motivated acting, which and the movement is an extension of that motive, those motivations. You'll get something that I believe will work. And he. He hired me on the spot. I wasn't looking for a job. And he he gave me eight months to develop it, which took a long time. And uh, some of that involved... Oh, go ahead, Luke. I was gonna say, I'm, I'm a big fan of all kinds of like creature features and monsters in suits and animals and characters like that. Um, can, you th can you think off the top of your head some examples which do do that well and imbue that character and some which don't? Well, I think... I think these... The Star Wars characters, some of them worked very well. Uh, they had the, uh, um, you know, George Lucas had the advantage of using Stuart Freeborn, who did did 2001, you know. And um, uh, the, but I think, I got to tell you guys, we're the best. You know, <laughs> what we, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a, a humble guy, but, uh, we did it better than anybody, and um, and I don't think anybody's done it as well since because they can't afford to, um, and because literally, I studied the movement of apes and chimpanzees and gibbons. I you know I had eight months to to develop the, those movements, to cast those people, to train them, and I had you you. Then you'll make a whole film in that amount of time, you know, and to produce 18 minutes. And then I, then it was, as a, then you got Stanley Kubrick as the director. He was a, perhaps the greatest uh, film director of the 20th century. Um, so, and then we took eight weeks, eight months to develop it and about eight, eight to 10 weeks to shoot it, to shoot those, just those 18 minutes. Can you imagine eight to ten weeks? We would do as much as 40 or 50 takes, you know, to get everything exactly perfect. And uh, it, uh, and I, I was also, my training is, my, my teacher, Paul Curtis at the American Mime Theater, was a different form of mime. You just, most mimes put white face on and do pantomime and do a walk in place and, you know, handle imaginary objects and, and look clownish. We, uh, every, all the mime we did, where we did mime plays where it began with the acting process, with real characters having real feelings, doing things, and then extended those feelings into, into movement. And it made, it made the movement believable, uh, rather than something you looked at, it was something you experienced, you went with. And, uh, so I was, Stanley was lucky that I was around, and I was super lucky that we got to meet and he got to use me. So I was able to use my training, which just fit that fit that thing perfectly. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, I mean, they wanted me to work on um, Greystoke, a uh, couple things, it, but it just wasn't wasn't the same, you know.
Yeah. Um, I guess the, the filming for that was the tail end of the 2001 filming, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, they had already done all the, Stanley had already done the live action. Uh, so Keir and Gary and those people had already been shot and had left. Um, so he was doing the special effects and the, the special effects took an inordinate long time because there were no, we, we had no computers, no CGI. Everything was done in the camera. Uh, and it, you know, film would, you would expose film and then they would, it would be wound back and then put away and then that same film would be brought. It was like a shot of a, of a spaceship against a black velvet background with an incredible amount of light shot at, at very, very uh, narrow apertures to get incredible detail. And then it would be, then the, the, the model of the, of the, um, of, uh, the space guy, would be then it would be shot with him in front of black the same film would be exposed so he would be now he would now be on the film uh you know it was all done in the camera it was uh incredibly meticulous and took we were way over budget way over budget the guys that the guys at mgm who were the, the studio that was behind it at the time were having cat fits well, um, coming into that contact with Stanley Kubrick, we're looking at a very enigmatic film, like deep science concepts. You could think about like hermeticism and things when you're watching this. Um, did he ever say anything to just um, like his own insight into what he was making? Because, I mean, part of the charm is that it's it's whatever it is to the watcher. But no, we would talk. I mean, Stanley and I talked. I saw, I was with Stanley every day for, you know. 15 months and uh because i also worked after we after we wrapped the dawn of man sequence i worked on the stargate sequence uh with con Pedersen and doug trumbull and uh also stanley and i were trying to create an alien and uh we did a lot of you know he would make me up and shoot me in funny ways and things like that so we were doing that right up until the end we never we never got anything he was that he was happy enough to put in the picture. But he was notorious about not telling people what it was about. We focused on just the actions that were being done. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, we, there's a scene where we first see the uh, monolith, and we've been asleep, and we come out, we run around, and, you know, and then go up, and then I go up to the monolith, and I reach up and touch it with my hand. And so we were doing this, we do the shot and everything, and Stanley said, no, I want you like this. And I said, well, that sort of feels awkward. He said, yeah, but I'd like it. Then. I said, why? And he said, because I've already shot, and I didn't know this because I hadn't seen the scene, the shot on the moon where um, Haywood Floyd goes up and touches it. He wanted to match the hands. But he didn't, he hadn't told, he didn't tell me that before. Once he told me that, it was easy to do. You know? <laughs> He didn't like to, he didn't, the thing about Stanley's pictures is he didn't want to tell people what was there about because that would, then they would think that when they were watching it rather than having the pure experience and of, he would let the film, want the film to speak for itself. 
And I get that because um, I've never. I think Luke has read the the novel. I have you know purposely avoided novel because I just love the enigmatic nature of something like this. I mean, I knew what was. I knew. Let's put this: we we knew what we were doing, and we know we knew the the continuity and the details of the story and what was going on. And so people are always amazed at things like, for instance, when I throw the bone in the air, and then you see this satellite orbiting around the earth that matches that's that's a, a hydrogen bomb satellite and nobody knows that that is the first weapon with the most modern weapon you know you know but Stanley doesn't tell you that you know so there's all this going on that people don't know you know but it adds to the mystery of it and it also forces the audience to experience it more completely to pulls them in as they try to understand and get around it. Uh, Luke, do you want to throw any questions about 2001 out? Um, so you mentioned how, like, what Stanley Kubrick wouldn't say. Uh, what what was the direction that he did give you for the Dawn of Man scenes? What, what did he actually ask for? He gave, Stanley gives very little direction to actors. Um, in fact, Malcolm McDowell, you know, who was in... Um, uh, Clockwork. The, uh, Clockwork Orange, you know, he was saying to me one day, oh, I hated working with Stanley because he never told me what to do, you know, and Stanley, Stanley had the attitude, well, I'm paying you, you're the actor, show me something, you know what the script is, because much of the, the reason Stanley did so many takes is not because he was trying to get something right and it wasn't happening, so he had to keep trying and keep trying until he got it right. It was because he would shoot something. He'd take the first take and say, well, that was sort of interesting what happened over here. Okay, in this take, why don't, why don't you do that a little more? Then we'd look at it and say, well, you know, that was pretty good. I think that worked, but might have been too much with your right hand. Why don't we do because what he was discovering things as it went along, and he was hoping the actors would bring to it something that he hadn't thought of. And if you overdirect an actor and tell him exactly what to do, if you yes, you can get it exactly the way you want it, but you're shutting the door on on the serendipitous things that may happen. And Stanley was always building on the the great his greatest moments were accidents that he recognized it took. For instance, throwing the bone in the air was not in the script. What happened was, is that when I first, first doing those first takes where I pick the bone up and start playing with it, a little bone flipped up in the, a rib bone flipped up in the air because I hit it just on the edge. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, because Stanley and I were talking to each other because I had a mask on and we had no sound running. So I'm sorry, Stanley. He said, no, no, I like it. Do it again. So like that. So we did, we did, a, a, over the next few weeks, he kept wanting to, extend that so if you look at the actual scene now it's my god it's like crashing of skulls and throwing them in the air and the tapir falling to the ground he built that incredible moment from a little accident that had happened and then by by cultivating it and developing it and exploring it and you know he once said that he in a film he he needs he needs five or six great moments that's what he needs, something that goes beyond, you know, those special things. And that uh, it's it's not, to him, it's not taking the script and just making it as best you can. 
It's taking the script and using that as a starting point for things you will discover, and hopefully you'll discover enough really special moments that you can enhance and develop so the, the film will be wondrous. Um, uh, our podcast is based in Japan, and I uh, was reading you've had a few of your own magical mystery tours around uh, Japan and India. Um, and it, uh, from your Facebook, when we were uh, talking there, it looks like until the lockdown came in, you were still on plenty of magical mystery tours. I've been in uh, at least 90 countries. Uh, and I, uh, the, the, when I, I met Yoko in Tokyo, and I had, I had taken a leave of absence from performing to study mimetic forms or, or mime and how mime is used in theaters around the world. And I had, uh, I had, I didn't have any, I'd run out of money and I'd hitchhiked from, from Paris to India and, um, got sidetracked because I fell in love with this Russian princess and went up and lived on a houseboat with her in Kashmir during the winter. But when the spring came, I had to get to Japan because I was very interested in the no and the kabuki theaters. And, um, when on the, on the way to Japan, I was on a boat and I ran into, uh, this, uh, a Fluxus a conceptual artist and, and uh, a conceptual composer named Jed Curtis, who just died last week, but an absolute sweetheart. And he said, what you're doing is so interesting, you've got to meet Yoko Ono. I did some performances with her in New York, and she's in Japan. And so Jed took me to meet Yoko, and that's how I first met her. And the way I was supporting myself, since I had no money, and I, 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 was, I spent a month at the No Theater every day, studying, watching the rehearsals and figuring out how they did things and watching their performances. And I would go to the Kabuki as well. Is that I would, um, I had a flag. Uh, I would stand on the street by, uh, I guess it was by Shinjuku or Shibuya, something like that, by one of the the big uh, subway stations, and um, I would. Uh, write a poem for anybody or do them a dance, uh, and if they would give me money, you know, and so I needed this big flag and I'd written this poem and Yoko translated it into Japanese and her then husband, Tony Cox, who's a good calligrapher and he, um, he wrote, he wrote it out with, you know, ink on the, on the canvas, which were hung from uh, bamboo poles, which I could, I could set up, you see. And, uh, so that's how, that's yeah. I had a wonderful time. I loved Japan. I absolutely adored it, and uh, I loved sushi. So I was in heaven. Yeah, I, I the the romanticism of being a world traveler is amazing. But in my own life, I just I felt like a, a, a gravity's pull towards just this Nagano Valley, and I barely want to leave it. But uh, yeah, I love it. Well, you're it's a wonderful place to be. I think you're very lucky. Yes, especially now. <laughs> but um, yeah, tell me about it. We got a bunch of idiots over here running. You know, it's like the, the lunatics have taken over the asylum, and uh, people are dying, dropping like flies. Yeah, um, I guess you've since you've been in contact with so many people uh, of no people we all know. What what are a few of the uh, life lessons that 
you could share, I guess. Well, you know, the thing about it depends on what you want to learn from life. Um, the thing is, is that I think it's important to know who you are, uh, because if you don't know you who you are, you won't know what you want to do or what can make you happy. Or yeah, and you can't be, you can't have good relationships because you have no idea who you are, and so you're not representing yourself uh, accurately. Uh, so I think self knowledge is very very important, and I also think it's really important to pay attention and to listen. You know, uh, to hear what's going on around you and hear hear what other people are saying, and um, and um, value everybody. Give everybody the same value. Yeah, those certainly sound like words to live by. Um, and, and then for me, yeah, that key actually has been living in Japan and America. I could just never get my head out of myself, whereas, uh, or at, le at least not in a profound way, whereas Japan just seems to be a nice, nice place to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's such a rich culture. Um, I don't know. I've... Uh, I loved I loved Tokyo. I, I Yoko is a Yoko is I have a lot of Japanese friends. That sounds terrible to say that I have a lot of Japanese. That's like I have a lot of black friends. You know? <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends. You know, all all shapes and sizes and colors and dispositions. But uh, I guess we do need to be wrapping up, actually, because I have an appointment today. But um, Dan, you've written two notable books. Can you tell the good people a, a little bit about those? Yes. The first book I wrote is Moonwatcher's Memoir, which basically is a memoir about me, but focuses on the period that I was working with Stanley Kubrick. The, the purpose of it, uh, Arthur Clarke and I were talking, and he felt that I should write down how we had made the opening of 2001 because Stanley had just died and um, we felt that he and I were the only two people who knew the whole story of, of the opening, of all the things that were done. So that was the purpose of that book and people seem to like it and um, it's out of print. So it's, it's, yeah, it costs a lot of money to get one, but uh, it's still on Amazon. And the other one is, uh, I did this, pretty much the same thing with John, John Yoko. It's another memoir at, at which it, it talks about me. I said it from, through my life, you know, rather than about them. And, um, but then it, it, because it covers that period, it's a lot about them. And it's a lot about them from my perspective, not, not as a fan, but just as a, a friend and a, a, a artistic, uh, uh, Comrade pa passing through, and that's called the dream is over, and that's also on Amazon. And I got through that one in about two days, so I will vouch for it being a pretty good read. <laughs> good. Well, I tried to keep it short. You know, Yoko said you got to keep things short. People have short uh, attention spans these days, and uh, she was grac gracious enough to do the opening, the forward, or whatever it's called, and. Uh, I don't know. We Yoko's an old friend, you know. It's um, I, and I'm glad to see that she's getting. You guys probably don't know because she's so well known now and appreciated. But she was the butt of so much. Uh, they were treated her terribly when she and John first got together. I mean, just terribly. And uh, they said terrible things about her. The press was terrible to her. Um, and uh, 
she's she's gotten past that and she's uh people appreciate that she's a very unique artist who uh, made, has made great com contributions to culture and continues to create today <laughs> absolutely absolutely well, winding down a bit, we would definitely thank you. Uh, just so many amazing stories. Yeah, uh, Magical Mystery Tour is a bit of our, our red herring today. Um, just seemed like a good entry point, and we've done 2001, but uh, revisiting in this way has been fantastic. So, Well, Magical Mystery Tour really represented the Beatles at their freest before, you know, the pressures of life came in on them in business and, and, and you know, when there was a there was a couple of years there in London where they were just everybody was free and just doing what they felt like doing and, and were all excited and full of ideas and saw a new world coming and uh, the magical mystery tours uh, it comes from that you know yeah. of that and as people down the pike of course we weren't there but I feel like it's just a way to feel a little sliver of uh, that vibe so you you will really get that vibe from that. And I think that's one of the most important things about it now is that to that you could just by watching it, as you said, I guess it's on YouTube, you'll get a sense of uh, of what sort of what was like back then. <laughs> Winding down, uh, Luke, you want to give a, a spit out the letters today? Yep. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find it on all of that internet stuff at MLSFS Pod, um, and Please just, you well, check out the 2001 episode if this is your first time listening. I think we genuinely <laughs> start that episode by saying uh, we couldn't tell if they were real apes or not. So that's about as much a testament to your work as we could possibly give, I think. <laughs> so thank you again, Dan. Okay, well, my pleasure, guys. And you take care, and I had a good time doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll get this rolled up in a few weeks for you, and I'll send you a link when that is there. Thank you. All right. Good luck with it. Good luck. Take care. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Luke, you want to send the other folks out of our sanctuary? Okay. Well, why don't you, the listeners at home, hop on your bus and go on a little magical mystery tour of your own out of our sci-fi sanctuary.
those on the path, remember the vow. Be aware and authentic to where you are now. Virile hides the marsh crocodile in veils of mystery. To float in gardens primal behind the moat. Highs across mountains, their snow melts fair. Blossoms in hanging gardens. Aviators launch from citadels in brave Kirkuk. The things of the soul, truth be all told, were never meant to ever be sold. See through impulse, question desire. fire and water to immerse and be clean from the mire of dust transcend from the dream. 